So, uh, you know, I was, I was just thinking about something. When I was growing up, I never thought that I would be doing what I do now. I had something completely different in my mind in terms of my vision for my own future and what I thought I would be doing. I went to a high school performing arts because I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be in the movies. I wanted to be on TV. I wanted to be in commercials, whatever. And so I went to a high school of performing arts. And uh, that, it was a totally different experience. And, and I was seriously invested in this journey that I thought I was going to be on. My mom was a musician. She was an opera singer. I was a little kid who you know, grew up with my mother singing opera in the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. Not in their major performances, but she was there. And I remember just being, you know, a kid in the front row during all these practices, just watching my mom up there singing. And, and then whenever there was a musical and they needed a kid to be in it, my mom signed me up, whether I wanted to or not. So I, it was kind of like just embedded in me, like, that's what I'm going to do. Anyway, uh, when I was in the high school of performing arts, the teacher said, you, you need to get an agent. And so I got an agent, and the agent, this was all new to me, having an agent, but the agent would, the way it would work, this is back in the day, long before emails, and this is like ancient history, right? No emails, no cell phones, like you had a house phone, right? And the house phone would ring, you know, and pick it up, and it would be Edie, the agent, and she said, all right, I got a call for you tomorrow, and you got to go into the city, you know, she'd like rattle off the address, where I had to go in New York City, so I'd take the day off of school, and I would take the train into New York City from where I lived and, and, and walk across the city, take some subways, get to the place where the casting call was. And she said, you know, it's, you know, 15 to 17-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed males. And at the time, that was me. And, uh, and, and so I, I would show up to this place and, you know, I took the day off school. I'm on the train. I'm looking out the window and I'm just imagining. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I walk in there. I do the line. I get the part. I star in the movie. And in my mind, I'm like, at the Oscar ceremony, making my speech. I'm like, I want to thank my mom. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm there. Like, it already happened, right? So, whew, I get to that place. You know, I get to the address. I walk in. I'm like, okay, sweet, I'm here. And I walk in the door, and then there's like 75 blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 15 to 17-year-old males that are just sitting there practicing their lines. And and I'm watching around, and I'm walking around trying to find like a little place to sit and hide or whatever. And I see like this guy, and he's like the most amazing looking dude ever created. There's him. And then this one over here has like the best shoes. My shoes are terrible. I look like a dweeb. That was our 80s word, you know. Anyway, I, and I'm walking around over here. And this guy, like he's got the, the highest cheekbones and, and the perfect eyes. And, ah, and this one over here is like, listen to the way he talks. He sounds like he, he's going to win the award just from his voice. I am terrible. I'm nothing. What am I going to do? And what was happening is I, I, was, I was walking around comparing myself to everybody else. And, and then when it was my turn to go into the audition, I walked in. And you know what I was feeling like? Like this. I walk in, start reading my lines. And I got, you know, two lines into it. And then I hear the casting director say, okay, thank you, thank you. And that was not my cue to begin to say, well, you're welcome. <laughs> Take a bow. What it meant was, get on out. We're done with you. And when I, when I think about those moments, and that moment repeated itself quite a few times, because that's the way that industry works, is that when, when I walked into that room, and I'm looking around at all these other people and, and comparing myself to them, what I ended up doing was diminishing my own uniqueness and value out of that comparison 
and it eroded my confidence. And it kept me from being able to make my contribution in that moment that could have, that could have been excellent. And, and so I want to talk today about comparison. Because I think that the, the, the trap of comparison is one of the things that keeps us from being able to experience God's rest in our lives. Because it sets us on a cycle where we cannot embrace the uniqueness of how God has made us and the value of that. And we cannot experience any contentment with where God has us because we see what other people have and what they are doing. And we can't seem to embrace that what God has done in our lives is good. And it keeps us from being able to rest. And so I want to I wanna take you into a journey today of understanding what a con artist comparison is. And how it's able to rip you off. And, and I want to teach you today how to crush it. And, and so the main idea of my message is this. Is, is I want you to learn to crush comparison by embracing your divine design. I want you to learn this. How to crush comparison by embracing your divine design. That's If you walk out of here today remembering anything from today's talk, I hope you remember I'm on assignment to crush comparison in my life by embracing my divine design. And so this is, this is a word that I feel like every single one of us needs to hear because we are human beings. We have this innate, inherent thing in us that wants to size everything up. And we make value determinations about ourselves based on that assessment process. And we need to be able to call comparison what it is. It's a thief. It's a killer. It's one of the tools the devil uses to rob us of what God has intended for us. And we've got to learn to crush it by embracing our divine design. So I want to take you today to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we'll go there in just a moment, but in case you haven't been reading your Bible, or at least that part of it recently, you're like, God, what is that going on? Here's what's going on. At this point in the history of God's people Israel, you've got the people living in the promised land, and it's during this season where it's summed up in this statement. All of the people did as they saw fit. It wasn't actually a very brilliant chapter in the history of God's people because there was a lot of departure from doing what God had ordained, a lot of walking away from one another, a lot of you know, walking out on the will of God. And, uh, and the people in that time, they had the prophets were basically the ones exercising the leadership for the community of God's people. And the people were not even content with that. It's not, a, no, no, that's not enough either. We want a king. Everybody else has got a king. We want our own king. And that was kind of the heartbeat of the people. God said, all right, you got a king? Okay, you got a king. Samuel. And Samuel was a, was a stud. You know, it says so in the scripture. It says that he was the best looking dude in all of the land. And he was tall, dark, and handsome. You know, proverbially like the, the stud of the, of, of the land. And, and uh, Samuel's the king. And, and just before what we're about to read, uh, we, we find that there's this young guy, David, who's come on the scene. And there was a champion among the Philistines that they, they, the Israelites, they couldn't figure out how to defeat. But David came out all bad with his attitude and his confidence in the Lord his God and chopped off Goliath's head, right? So Goliath went down, and David was the one who did it. So David is now on Saul's radar. He says, man, the king could use a guy like that, able to slay the giant? Hmm. He's watching. He's got it. And with all of that in mind, you just kind of jump in right now to First uh, to Samuel, First Samuel 18. And jump right in at verse 5. Remember, Samuel, Saul had his eye on David. David now had this reputation, Zion, Shelah. 
this is what we read, verse 5. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David killed the Philistine, women from the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. But this made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousand and me with only thousands? Next they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul. He began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand. And he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David, and he turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over 1,000 men. And David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. He was so successful in leading his troops into battle. This, we just read through it really quickly, right? But this is a classic example of why comparison is such a destructive force. And, and why it is so damaging to the path of destiny that God has for every single one of us, both internally and to those around us. And, and I want us to dive into this and understand it together and, and, and really take to heart every lesson we can. I mean, it's a quick little story, but you've got to sometimes take some time to steep in these things, to take it to heart. And so back right up to verse 5. I mean, right where we began reading, you can see the thing beginning to unfold. It said, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. That, that should be a good thing. I mean, if you're the king, and you've got somebody who's part of your team, and everything they're doing, they're doing it successfully, that should be good. Except what's going on is that Saul is looking at the dynamics from the comparison lens. And with the comparison lens, it's always about scarcity. If David is going to be successful, then that means there won't be enough success for me to be valuable. And comparison always brings with it that scarcity mindset. It's not enough, and I'm going to end up losing. That's not a kingdom mindset. That is not the mindset of an eternal God who is the source of unfailing love and whose word is eternally true for every single one of us. There is no scarcity in the kingdom of God. But in the kingdoms of men, there is a limited supply and a limited ability to be valuable. But this problem has just begun. I mean, that scarcity mentality is rearing its ugly head. But what I also see is that we need to come to terms with the reality that comparison exists. And there's kind of a spectrum when it comes to comparison. And, and not all of it is evil. Like when you think about it, comparison, it, it kind of begins on this end of the spectrum with evaluation and assessment, but then moves to devaluation and diminishment and derogation and 
destruction. I mean, that is the continuation, the continuum of this thing called comparison. So I want to highlight something. There is a degree of this continuum of comparison. There is a swath of it that is normal, that is helpful. I mean, because you've got to be able to do evaluation to understand what, you know, what kind of progress you've had and how you're doing towards goals. And, and you've got to be able to make an assessment about how far you have to go and what direction you need to head in. And I want to just highlight that, that when I'm using the term comparison broadly, there is a section of that continuum that is helpful and healthy. But we need to, we need to recognize that it ends right about there. <laughs> the evaluation, the assessment, and how that allows us to determine our course and how, how far we've got to go. But what I find is that for a lot of us, we don't do very well at, at allowing us at allowing ourselves to do that part and, and then not arrive at the other part of the continuum where we determine that, that either my value is diminished or their value is diminished based on this assessment that I'm making. We've got to grow in recognizing the sinful tendency in our own hearts to, to engage in that diminishment and, and then the derogation, the flipping her down and cutting him down to size that ends up happening out of our own insecurity. So we got this comparison. It's just already beginning to, to brew. We can see it with, with Samuel, but it begins to become more clear. Verse 6, it said, when the victorious uh, Israelite army was returning home after David killed the Philistine women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. And they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Then Saul very angry. What's this? He said. They credit David with ten thousand and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So, so we, we see it brewing inside of Saul right there, right? All of a sudden, the success David has only can possibly lead to one conclusion. I'm going to be less valuable. I have less to bring now as a result of this. And this, this moment, to me, it marks that, that Saul misses something. I mean, we just read the text together, and it said that it said all the women from all the towns all came out for who? It said it clear as day. It said they came out for King Saul. They came out for him. They all recognized he's our king. He is the grand poobah. He is the one who's calling the shots and the shots were good. And he called them because they came out for King Saul. But King Saul, it's like he, he couldn't hear it. But when he said that all the women came out from all the towns like playing the tambourines for King Saul. Like, that's a pretty good day if you're King Saul. Like, when's the last time all the women started coming out playing their tambourines for you? Like, I don't know. That only happened to me once in my life. I was in a Greek restaurant, and this lady who was a belly dancer came out with her tambourine and started playing for me, and I was sitting there with a group of Bible college students. It was awkward. <laughs> you know, it, it was a good day for Saul. It, it was a really good day for Saul if he could have if he could have recognized it. I mean, the, the, the moment to me is kind of like beautiful. It's kind of awesome, you know? It's, it's like they're coming back from big-time victories, and they're dirty. You could almost imagine that they're coming back off the battlefield. They got their robes all strewn with blood and dirt, and they got their 
spears all hanging on the sides of them, but they just won, you know, and it's like the football team coming home after the homecoming game, and they won it, you know, and the marching band is out there, and, you know, they're just going crazy, and they're, and there's this epic scenario where they're celebrating because they won, and, and it's like this. I want you to help me out a minute. I want you to get a little, uh, I want you to get a little stomp, clap, actually. I want you to go stomp, clap, stomp, clap. Benjamin, Pastor Benjamin, would you get up for a second, and would you lead this for me? Make sure it doesn't stop. Make sure the clap and the stomp doesn't stop at all. Come on, keep it going, all right? And they were singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David, his tens of thousands. Saul has killed his thousands and David, his tens of thousands. Saul has killed his thousands and David, his tens of thousands. Yeah, come on. You know what I'm talking about? It was like this epic. We're good. We're good. We're good. I just wanted a chance to rock the drape just for a second. Anyway, I, you know, it was like this beautiful, amazing day. And if Saul could have seen it for what it was. A celebration of his leadership. A celebration of his willingness to recognize anointing on another. A celebration of his capacity to raise up. A celebration of his ability to, to commission. It, it was such a beautiful moment. It really was. And I think there was so much honor in the moment. So much dignity and value and worth being conveyed and conferred to Saul. And yet, Saul just couldn't shake that little lyric. His ego could not handle the recognition of the contribution of another. Even though it was ultimately part of his own good, part of what would point to the goodness of what he could do. Could, could, it, could you imagine if Saul could have seen it differently? If Saul could have seen it differently and seen it for what it is, a recognition that someone who he had raised up and has now become so fruitful. And, and, and what it would have afforded is it would have afforded King Saul the opportunity to do other things that only he could have done. Because David was living in his unique divine design. Unique divine design by God to be a, a giant killer and a, and a, a defeater of 10,000, right? And that was his divine design, and he was living it out. And if Saul could have the security to see it, it would have freed Saul up to be the king that, that the, the king that could spend time creating treaties with other nations and, and making trade arrangements with uh, other countries and sitting with the judges to ensure that there could be a, a plan made for the security of the nation moving forward. And, and there could have been such value if he could recognize that the, uh, the honor that was being shown to David through that lyric didn't necessarily need to equate with diminishment of him. But in, in his human frailty, which we all come to terms with sometimes, don't we? There's this comparison being made by which we cannot think that that conclusion has come to be, that David's recognition in this moment has to lead to him being diminished. In verse 8, it said, it made Saul very angry. So that's the credit to David, 10,000, and he was only it's only making him different. And what I see here is that that this moment of comparison that erodes the joy, it, it, it sabotages peace. And it produces anger. Catch that it's all very angry. You know, anger is always a function of something that we have been hurt by or that we're afraid of. 
and exposed in this case, I think, Saul, he's hurt by this, what he probably feels to be a lack of recognition in leadership classes or his, his ability to highlight a path and a strategy for victory. And, and he's also afraid. And we have to come to terms with that. If we're going to really conquer comparison and pressure, we have to be aware that comparison produces that lack of joy, sometimes outright anger in us. And it has something to do with a lot of times what we're afraid of. We're afraid that if, if she has all of that, I'm not going to be able to have what I need. Because we're, we're, we're not dealing with the scarcity mindset that has been inbred in us from circumstances that we've lived through in the past without God's favor. And I, I see in, in this scripture, Saul rising up with insecurity and inferiority and inadequacy, all born of this moment of comparison. And when you're living with inadequacy and inferiority you, you, and insecurity, you're not going to have the ability to rest. Because insecurity causes you to constantly feel that you're not safe. And when you're not safe, you cannot sleep. You cannot rest. Because you're constantly trying to worry about, what do I have to fend off now? Insecurity leads to an inability to rest. And then inferiority causes you to constantly question whether you are worth anything or whether you're valuable or not. And when you're wondering all the time whether you're worthwhile or not, you are battling self-hatred, whether you knew it or not. You're battling demonic forces. And it causes you to have no rest. And when you are struggling with inadequacy, born of comparison, you are going to feel the compulsion to constantly perform and make something happen by your own weary strength. And there's no rest for you. And so I just, I want to recognize the danger of comparison. I want to recognize how foul it really is and how much damage it can actually do in my life. And I want to learn how to, how to conquer it. Verse 9, it said, Say, shall or die. No, no, say it like I just did. More fun. Say, shall or die. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of an interesting turn of phrase in the scripture. So I'll kept it. What does that even look like? Is that what it is? it that? I don't know. But he kept a jealous eye on David. And here's what I'm recognizing. I'm recognizing that we, we have to superintend our vision. Because our vision can quickly become division and a, and a lack of experience of God's provision if we don't superintend it. And comparison that leads to this jealousy to mess up your vision like a canal. He said he kept his jealous eye on David. Guess what? If he's got his jealous eye on David, do you know what his eyes can't be on? His eyes can't be on the glorious things that are about to happen in Israel. His eyes couldn't be on the vast expanse of favor that God had granted to him. His eyes couldn't be on 
all of the amazing people that were part of this team that had been raised up and ready to keep fighting. His eyes couldn't be on the beauty of this family and the goodness of this relationship. His eye couldn't be on God himself. When comparison has got us, got our eyes. But you know who deserves your affection and your attention? The living God. And because of that, this comparison thing has got to go from every one of our lives. Not only because it deprives us of rest, it does, but because it damages our capacity to give our full adoration to our God. Because our eyes are on something else. And for some of us, it's time to repent. Because we've had our, it's not just God's problem. We see. We've had our jealous eye on her. How did she get that? I, I did. We've had our jealous eye on, man, I should be driving one of those. <laughs> Someone laughed at the little kid knowing what they meant. No, 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 we, we need to guard our vision because God has given us a path for what our perspective looks like. I mean, we, we touched on this verse on Friday night and a few of these, but Hebrews 12, 2, right? It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I mean, we've got to determine that we'll do that. But if my eyes aren't jealous and carrying all the time, I'm not going to be able to live out what God's called me to do. But when I do fix my eyes on Jesus, I'm beholding glory. I'm beholding perfection. I'm beholding the absolute, inequivocal, equivocal expression of my worth demonstrated by God who sent His Son Jesus. That's why I'm fixing my eyes on I, I, I fix my eyes on Jesus and I fix my eyes on perfection. The scripture says in Colossians 3 2, let us set our eyes on things above where Christ is seated. Well, how am I going to be able to do that if my eyes are set on someone that don't have, they have it and I deserve it? And I'm caught up in that comparison trap. I'm not going to be able to enter into the experience of perceiving that heavenly reality and the glory of that heavenly reality that fills me, refreshes me, restores me. I've got to take responsibility to superintend what's going on with my vision. The scripture says in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. I find, I said it the other night, but I find that it's true. When I set the Lord before me, I am in his rest. I'm there. And I gotta watch out for keeping my own jealous eye on what's going on with them over there. I gotta have that too. How come it erodes my peace and my joy? It steals. It's one of the ploys of the enemy here. Kill, steal, and destroy. Second Corinthians four eighteen, we therefore we fix our eyes. With our human eyes, so much of what we see is only the external. And we see what they got. We feel so jealous. We have no idea that they stacked it all up on credit cards and they're living under a private burden of pressure that we can't even imagine trying to sustain that fake image. You don't want that. You see something that you think you want. You don't want that. 
But when you compare only what you can see, because your eyes are fixated on only what is physically visible, what is seen, you're going to miss it. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is unseen is eternal. We've got to do it. Otherwise, we end up just like Saul. We're walking around with our inadequate and inferior and it does us no good and we wear ourselves out as a result and we live without the rest of God. It's not what we're made for. And we keep reading verse 9. It said this. He said, so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and then he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, but David escaped him twice. This is a crazy moment, isn't it? It's crazy to me, like that this is what's going on. And you can picture them, they're in the, under the same roof, they're hanging out together, and they're smiling and nodding at each other, but Saul's like, yeah, no, everything's fine, we're, we're good, we're good, it's having a conversation. Ah, God! He's like going, and his son-in-law. I'm just crazy. It's crazy. But, but it, it's where comparison takes us. It takes us to such a place where we're out of our mind. And we, we're not living in the mind of Christ. And we're, and we're ready to kill somebody. It's what happens. You know? we gotta, we got to deal with that. Comparison is a real thing. We look at the outside of what someone else has going on and we just think they've got to be better than us. I guess it's August right now. What that means is in a couple months we're all going to be doing our damage. There's nothing like a wonderful family Christmas card. Like here's my Christmas card from last year. I think I have a picture of it. And if you don't have it on the screen, it's like inside of your. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. So you look at that picture. It's like I mean, I have a biased opinion, but I'm like perfect family. You know what? That looks like such a nice picture, but I was there when it got taken. And what you can't see in this picture is what it was like the five minutes before, where we're like picking her up off the ground, going, Stop crying! I will give you a bag of candy if you will just stop crying. And this one, I'm like, If you don't stand there and smile, I'm going to take away your cell phone for the rest of your life. Smile! Urgh! You know? And then finally, click, take the picture before it melts again. You know, like, you know. But we we send this out. I'm sure, like a bunch of my cousins, you know, saw that one. Wow, they got the perfect family. Some our family can't be like that. You know, it's like such a facade. You know, I, I mean, we all laugh because we know it's true. We know how that stuff goes down. But we do that, right? We tend to look at the highlight reel from someone else and come to our determinations about what's going on based on a, a, a false representation of reality. And I think we need to allow ourselves to understand that it isn't always as good as, as we think it is. I mean, Saul's running around like a madman, ready to kill somebody, but he actually has plenty, but he can't, he can't have any contentment about what he has. He's yearning for the land of earth. You know what I'm talking about? Some of us, we, we are yearning for the land of earth. I just, need to, I just I just want to be prettier. I just need to be sexier. I just wish I was curvier. I just wish I was wealthier. 
I just want to be happier. But, but, but you're godlier, and he's funnier, and they're wiser, and I need to be, and I wish I was whatever er you want. And, and for some of us, we need to give up on trying to get to the land of the earth. We need to embrace where God has planted us and what he's given us, and that it's good. And, and ultimately, that's part of embracing our divine design, that the problem with Ur is that there's just when you get some Ur going for you, you're going to find somebody else that's got more Ur than you, you know? And you're going to be back to that cycle. It's going to be a punishing, defeating cycle, and it's not worth being on that. So tell somebody right now who's sitting next to you, you better get out of Ur. Tell them like you mean it. Get out of Ur. <laughs> oh. So verse 12, Saul and David... It said in verse 12, Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. That's that verse. But it's revealing something to us. That there's a way in which when, when we enter into that cycle of comparison and settle for it, it turns off the heart of our God. Because he knows who he is. He knows that he's the source of every good and perfect gift. He knows that he's the divine designer. He knows that he has thought up the things that are going on in this world and even in our lives. And it turns him off when we can't recognize that. I mean, some of us who are parents, right, we know what it's like when, when we give one of our kids a gift and they enjoy it, and then we give one of our other kids a gift, and then this one starts going, that. I need that. How come I didn't get one of those? And as a parent, you just go, oh, you know, and it turns us off too. And, and it says, God, turn away from Saul. He's like, I, 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 I'm not into that. that ingratitude. Because that's ultimately what it is. When we're engaged in this process of comparison, we are not able to cultivate a grateful heart. And it is a grateful heart that moves our God. And, and, and so it's dangerous because it erodes ingratitude. But we keep reading verse 13. It says, finally, Saul sent him away, appointed him commander over a thousand men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. And David continued to succeed in everything that he did, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of This comparison leads to isolation. I think God's plan was for Saul to experience healthy partnership and co-laboring and legacy that had a multiplied effectiveness. But because of the comparison, he's not able to enjoy that. And instead, send David away. Get away from him. And we do that, right? If we're, if we're comparing ourselves with other people, we don't really want to be on a journey with them. We don't really want to hang out with them because it puts us constantly in our face of what the thing is that they have that we don't have. And it's isolating. Comparison isolates us from the healthy connection that God had in mind for us all along. So what do we do? Well, what do we do? Well, we've got alternatives. One is to just say, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I'm going to just keep on doing like I am. And... I'm going to get better at being ungrateful. 
I'm going to keep on comparing myself to what other people have and what I have. I'm going to keep on pursuing temporary possessions over eternal treasure. I'm going to keep on resenting God for where I am in life because I don't have what they do. And I'm going to keep on developing an attitude of entitlement because I should have that. It's not right that I don't. That's one path forward. And what we just read in the scriptures details for us where that goes. It's nowhere good. Or we can determine today that we're going to crush comparison by embracing our divine design. And, and inherent in that is recognizing, God, you're a perfect designer. You've got perfect and good plans that are unique to each one of us. And it goes in different directions. It leads to different destinations. But each one is a reflection of your goodness, God. And so this is, this is what I hope we do. I hope that, number one, we watch out for what we're wanting and enjoy what we're having. We should do that. We should watch out for what you're wanting. I mean, some of the wants that we have are God-ordained desires. He gives us the desires of our heart. But some of what we're wanting is beyond the desires that God is rightly stirring up in our heart. But they're simply the fruit of our own jealousy and con- comparison of another person. So watch out for what you want. And, and be grateful for, for what you have. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you have. Come back to what you do have and say again, why is it so good? Because when you first got it, it was. Don't lose sight of the goodness. It it is the goodness that is a reflection of God's love and blessing in your life. 1 Timothy 6 uh, says, but the godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's really what we're talking about this morning. Contentment. It's the great alternative to comparison. Contentment. And it, and it leads to great gain. I mean, if we did think that we were hoping for more, which in and of itself isn't wrong, contentment, oddly enough, is how we're going to get there. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Is that true of me? Is that true of me? If I got food and clothing, I will be content. That is quite a mature posture of faith, isn't it? To say, if I've got food and clothing, I will be content. If I'm very honest with you, I'm not. I'm not always there. Because I'm like, how can I get something else in my backyard? How can I put something else in my backyard? How can I get something else to show them? But this is what God is calling us to. If I, if I have food and clothing, I'll be content with that. Why don't you say that phrase out loud with me one time? Say, if I have food and clothing, I'll be content with that. Say it. Food and clothing. You get something to say. You just wage war. You just wage war against the spirit of deficiency. You just wage war against the spirit of mammon. You just told comparison, you're going down. <laughs> and it must be so. We, we've got to be willing to come back to that place. If I've got food and clothing, I'll be content with that. This is the sweet spot. Everything else is extra. And when God sees fit to give extra, thank you, Lord. But I'm going to come back to that place. Because there's peace there. There's rest there. 
second thing I hope to do is work some gratitude into our attitude. Be thankful. I didn't know that was going to be funny. Thank you. <laughs> work some gratitude into your attitude. Hebrews 12, 28 says it like this. Since we're receiving a kingdom of profanity, let us be thankful. The words of God kept resonating in our hearts. You, you are receiving this kingdom experience. It cannot be shaken. It lasts forever. Whatever you were going to be trying to go after and work so hard for to get it in your driveway, you can't have it. And you needed to show them. That's going to rust. It's going to turn to nothing. But the kingdom, it lasts forever. It will never be shaken. And, and that's your true inheritance. Far more valuable than anything else. And since you've got that, let's be thankful. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that I'm a son of the Most High God, a daughter of the Most High God. Thank you, God, that your spirit lives in me. Thank you, God, that you have armed me in the spiritual realm to tear down strongholds. Thank you, God, that I have an eternal home in heaven, and I will be, and even am now, seated at the right hand of God with Christ in heavenly places. Thank you, God, that I live by what you show me in your word. Thank you, God, that I don't live by by sight, but by faith I live. Thank you, God, that I've been surrounded by brothers and sisters who love me, care about me, pray for me. I'm never alone. Thank you, God, that you've sent your one and only Son who's declared, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you always. Thank you, God. I keep that thankful spirit. Thankfulness will invite the blessing of God. He is a good father. And he loves it when his sons and daughters recognize the goodness and they poured it out. And then we have some giving into your living. We have some giving into your living. If you want a trust comparison, you've got to do this. You've got to recognize that one of the best things you could do is to give, to release what God has given you. Because what he's demonstrated in his word is that as we give, he sees the readiness then to receive again. If you never give and you only hoard and clutch and grab and retain, God says, oh, it looks like you've got, you're full, so, okay. <laughs> but when we give, when we release, God says, oh, I see one that's a real gift. I see one that I can release and flow through. And so weave that giving into your living, into every aspect of it. Giving praise to people for how you're valuable and awesome. Giving opportunity to others to thrive, rise up and succeed. Giving ideas that others could maybe take and run with and build something out of. And giving of your resources that someone else could be refreshed and blessed. And give, as you do that, as you weave that giving into your living, the Lord is pleased and He loves it. He recognizes that you're not afraid of losing. When you're giving like that, it demonstrates to God, I don't have a scarcity. I believe that there's more than enough with you, Lord. And that as I release, I, I don't have to be concerned that there's this supply factor that's now diminished and now I'm going to be empty and not have. That, that God, you, you truly are the source of everything. There's no lack. No lack. We've that giving into your living. Luke 6.38, Jesus said, Give and it will be given to you. It's a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, according to your life. Did he meant this or not? It's part of what we do to trust comparison. But back to Saul. I mean, where, where, it, where it landed is so ugly. He sent David away to all Israel, it says in verse 16. 
loved David. He was so successful leading his troops into battle. David was in his sweet spot. David, David was embracing his divine design. God made me to go slay the giants and to go lead the troops into battle and be victorious. I'm going to do that. You know, David was living out what God had uniquely created him for. And it led to such success. It led to such victory. And he was free. It was harsh. Free. And what about you and me? Can we embrace our divine design? Recognize, God, you have done something good in what you did to make me. Psalm 139, verse 15. God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Say this next part out loud with me, verse 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And your works are wonderful. And I know that full well. About yourself. To do that, you will have to get your eyes off of her. How good it seems like it is for her. And on you. And I think God's all right with that. So we don't have to worry that we're going to become arrogant and proud with that. It's in his word. It's a model for understanding our own value and, and in celebrating and embracing that as a point of health. I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I know it. Ephesians 2.10. We are, say it with me, God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Each one of us, individually, a masterpiece of God with a unique contribution that we alone can make, that no one else can do quite like you can. That no one else can reflect that particular aspect of the heart of God quite like you can. If you could simply step into your divine design, embrace it, and bless it. I think there's so much power for us in blessing, in blessing. Blessing. In just a, a, a couple minutes, I'm going to put my wife on the spot, ask us to have a time of blessing, to bless ourselves, because we are going to crush comparison by embracing our divine design, the original thought and intention God had in mind when He thought us up. Romans 5:8. God demonstrates His own love for us in this: that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ultimately, comparison is about value, isn't it? And it's about uh, coming to false determinations about value. But God has made an eternal, eternal de definition of value already. And he said, before, before you even had a clue about me, I already determined you were worthwhile to me. Worth me sending my one and only son. Worth my blood being shed for you. Your value has been eternally determined by God before you even knew that you needed him. I mean, this is the revelation of the Word of God. And it's time for us to crush comparison by embracing our divine design and the value that God has stirred up for us. So, Pastor Aaron, I can ask you to stand up. I want you to lead us in a, in a time of blessing. And, and, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to bless yourself. The daily discipline if you haven't engaged in a daily discipline like this, it starts now. You're going to embrace your divine design, and you're going to bless yourself in the design of God for your life. Hello? Okay, there we go. I, I think that I want to bless you guys by category, if you don't mind. So... <clears throat> 
in uh, the first thing that the Lord brought to mind was those of you who are really silly and funny, I bless you in Jesus' name to know that the Lord created you with so much joy, so much laughter, ability to bring uh, a lightheartedness into every situation. I bless you to know that you have so much value. I bless you to know that you have so much purpose, that the jokes and the, and the stories and the um, funniness, uh, that all has purpose in the kingdom of God. So I bless you to know that you are not less than. I bless you to know that you bring so much, so much goodness into the kingdom of God. And then I bless the thinkers in this room. <laughs> I bless those who are deep thinkers, whose rivers, the waters go deep. And I bless you in Jesus' name to be exactly who God created you to be. I bless you to know that you have strategies from heaven. I bless you to know that um, you look like the Lord. You look like the Lord in the depths of who you are, in the complexities of who you are. Um, I bless you to know that you are powerful and that your thoughts are powerful and that your thought processes are not too complicated, that the Lord journeys with you and that there's glory in the way that he made you. I bless those of you who have bleeding hearts. Those of you that are so full of compassion. I bless you to know that you carry the Father's heart. And that you bring healing to this world. I bless you to know that you are not too emotional. <laughs> yeah. And that your tears bring joy. Your tears bring healing. Your tears bring heaven to earth. I bless the passionate ones, the loud ones, the ones that you've been told you're too much. You're too much, right? I bless you to know that you are not too much. You are not too much. You bring energizing. You bring excitement. You bring, like, bigness to the kingdom. And I bless you to know that you are amazing. You are not too big. You get to shine brightly for the Lord. I bless you to be as loud as you want to be, <laughs> as boisterous as you need to be, as passionate and as excited as you need to be. I bless you to be exactly as the Lord has created you to be. I bless the ones who feel really plain, like you don't have a place, like you're just plain. I bless you to know that you are not. You are so unique. I bless you to find your sweet spot. I bless you to have the courage and the confidence to be yourself and to rescue back your voice and to rescue back broken dreams. 
I rest, I bless you to go on a discovery journey of yourself. What makes your heart sink? What makes you uniquely you? There's nothing plain about you. You're made in the image of the Almighty God. You look like Jesus. You look like Jesus. There's nothing plain about you. There's nothing bland about you. You are so special. You are so unique. You reflect the kingdom of God, the goodness of God. I bless the ones who are supporters. You are amazing. You are amazing. You never ask for the spotlight. You never want the spotlight. But without you, the kingdom could not exist. I bless you in Jesus' name to experience the pleasure of heaven over your life. I bless you to know that your support builds. Your support strengthens. Your support is critical. The ones behind the scenes, the ones who work so diligently, I bless you in Jesus' name. I bless you in Jesus' name to be filled with the love of God and the joy of heaven. I want you to stand together. Stay in this place of encounter with the Spirit of God. I want you to bless yourself in the name of Jesus. You are a kingdom of priests. And priests represent God to people and people to God. You're a priest in your own life, over your own temple. And I want you to say with me, I, I want to say what, what I have in mind and then let you simmer on it for a second. And you say it. You say, I bless myself in Jesus' name with gratitude and contentment. Say it again. I bless myself in Jesus' name with gratitude and contentment. Say this. I bless myself in Jesus' name with confidence in who God has made me to be. I am enough because he is in me. I bless myself in Jesus' name with courage to be me boldly. I bless myself in Jesus' name to rise up and take my place in the kingdom of God. I bless myself in Jesus' name to receive every blessing my God has for me. I bless myself in Jesus' name with eyes fixed on Jesus. I bless myself in Jesus' name to see the unseen and to live by faith and to walk with Jesus into any dark place and experience victory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your goodness. We trust in your unfailing love, God. We believe this, Lord.